You are listening to the podcast for Nerdy Christians, a show for progressive followers of Jesus who also happen to love Hogwarts, Hobbits, and... What was that? Samantha? (laughs) This is Season 3, Episode 5, Frozen 2, Grow Yourself into Something New. I'm Carrie Combs, and I'm very happy to be sitting across the internet from Adam Thomas. Hey, Adam, nice Olaf impression. Oh, thank you very much. We are recording this on the day it started snowing in Connecticut in October. (laughs) Uh, It's really gross outside, but we're inside. It's nice and warm, and we're going to talk about being frozen, or at least watching Frozen. I see what you did there. All right, so so last time we talked about Frozen, or Frozen 1. I know it's not actually mm-hmm. called that, but uh, and today we're going to talk about Frozen 2. It's our first two-part episode. It's really not a two-parter. It's like it's two, two consecutive episodes. And yeah. Maybe there will be a Frozen 3 one day, but at least on my part, I was excited when there was a Frozen 2 because it was surprising. It's always nice to see what happens after the happily ever after. And this is very much a film that explores what happens once the, not there's not a bad, well, there was a bad guy. There was Hans. He was defeated and the sisters are reunited. And what happens next? Life happens. Life happens. And we jump in right away with them not wanting anything to change about no, that of course life. Not. Everything's perfect. Although, although you get a little, everyone's gotten a little bit older. I love that Olaf line. Shout out to the kids who grew up watching this movie and now are a little older. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Cause if you, if you were a, say a six or seven year old seeing frozen one in 2013, you see frozen two and you're a teenager, you're that's 12, weird. 13, Ooh, 14 years old. Ah. Interesting. Right. Yeah. And you can see a lot in this film, um, development in the technology. I just want to put a quick plug in of how gorgeous this movie is, especially watching Frozen 1 again for the podcast after watching Frozen 2 more recently. It's incredible how much more detailed the textures get. Um, The one like kind of teaser scene they released of Elsa trying to climb the waves on her way to Atta Holland. We're not, we weren't sure what that was about, but watching the the water, which I think they had developed that um, graphics engine for Moana and watching like her clothes, they had to animate her toes because they'd never showed her toes before. Oh, interesting. Um, huh. And just like the texture and the fabrics and the, the hair, everything is so gorgeous in this film. And it really makes for a very atmospheric, moody scene. The water knock, I think is so beautiful. The way they animate the horse with the flowing water in the mane. Every time they show those scenes of her uh, galloping across the water, it reminds me of that wonderful line in Lord of the Rings uh, about going into the West, uh, into the the rain curtain, the gray rain curtain falling back and seeing the swift sunrise. That that showing of of, uh, Elsa on the horse always makes me think of that. Oh, I just got shivers thinking about about that, and I'll I'll reread Lord of the Rings with a new image in mind. We're going to be talking about Lord of the Rings in oh, a couple right. episodes, which is oh, exciting. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Frozen Two is the very first movie my daughter saw in the theater, and uh, really really liked it. And then she wrote one of her little stories for school about going to the movie theater. Oh, nice. Elsa comes into her own, and that's what we're talking about in this in this podcast today is this incredible transformation that happens after after that first incredible transformation, one that's a lot more natural and true to who she is. And I, I loved just seeing her learn what her vocation is. That was such an enticing theme to be exploring. And as we're talking about uh, growing up and into something new uh, and also continuing to hold on to that love that propels us into newness, uh, we picked a scripture quote today from 1 Corinthians 13. 
when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part. Then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. And the greatest of these is love. Our quote from Nerd Canon is from the song from Frozen 2, Show Yourself, which is a duet at this point between Elsa and her mother, Queen Aduna. Starts off with both of them singing, show yourself, step into your power, grow yourself into something new. And then Aduna says, you are the one you've been waiting for. And Elsa jumps back in, all of my life, show yourself. We just want to do a quick head nod to the fact that this movie actually has a lot to say about reparations, Mm -hmm. and we want to do an entire episode about that. So we will be revisiting Frozen 2 at some point in the future. But today we're going to talk specifically about the songs in Frozen 2, just like we did last Mm -hmm. episode. And did you notice that the first melody in the movie is Do You Want to Build a Snowman? Absolutely did I ever. Just one little flute run of of the main melody. So uh, before we jump into the songs, I just wanted to point out, and you probably saw this too, in Agnar's vision and then also in Elsa's visions later, King Runard is wearing gloves. Oh my gosh, I didn't notice. time. Every time wow, we see him. And there's even, there's even one moment where he's like tugging on them. Where he, So it's actually drawing attention to him wearing gloves. And he is the deceptive <sighs> character in oh this movie, gosh. just like Hans in the first movie. And, and and Elsa, of course, in Let It Go, removing her gloves, showing that she's ending the deception that she's had to live under her whole life. Wow. Yeah. Yes. No, I did and not notice And he's the only one gloves. wearing them because his soldiers have them on in, in Agnar's vision. Um, but then later on when you meet Matthias, they're off. They don't have gloves mm. anymore. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> let's jump into the songs here. Uh, what's the first song? All is found, that lullaby, that really kind of depressing or, or morbid lullaby that Queen Aduna sings. Sing, she sings to both the girls. She starts by saying, this is this is one of the songs my mother sang to me. It's about this place called Atta Holland, said to hold all the answers to the past that we are a part of. And she starts singing to both the girls, but Anna quickly falls asleep. And it's almost like after that, she's singing just to Elsa. And as she sings things like, for in this water, all is found. And she thinks about a path for you. She looks specifically at Elsa, which later becomes important as, as Elsa finds her answers in Atahalan and dies for them for the sake of it. Mm. And then she sings, but can you brave what you most fear? Can you face what the river knows? We right in this first song, we bring up the concept of fear, which was a big part of frozen mm-hmm. one about Elsa learning past her fear to embrace love because she had been taught so much fear, to taught, her, taught to fear her own powers. And now, as we recontextualize Elsa's fears for Frozen 2, we see in Some Things Never Change and Into the Unknown that she has something new that she's afraid of, which is losing what she has built mm-hmm. since the end of Frozen 1. And losing herself kind of in, in that magic, this new burgeoning power, she can feel it grow. We'll go into that later, but she, she feels it growing and she's not sure she wants to, she doesn't, she's feeling torn between going forward and staying where she is. And she can't find a way to reconcile those two in the beginning of the film. So as we move into some things never change, it's a great 
conversation that starts off between Olaf and Anna, who are just hanging out. I guess that surprised me at first because I didn't think they would be friends, but he's a sentient snowman. So I guess, sure, they're going to hang out. Yeah, she's a, he's a, her sidekick. Yeah, yeah, he's the, he's the friend. And, and Anna's like, I don't worry about, you know, getting older and the existential crises that might bring because um, I have you and Elsa and Kristoff and Sven and the gates are open wide now and I'm not alone anymore. So for Anna, mission accomplished. She's not alone. That's the the main goal of her existence up until this point, And she's happy. And it's a perfect summary of the first movie. Mm-hmm. We actually get a couple of fun summaries of Frozen oh, yeah. 1 in Frozen 2. Of course, Olaf's wonderful monologue later. Uh, but here it's a one-sentence uh, one sentence summary of Frozen 1. And she ha- she hits the gates are open wide and not being alone. Mm-hmm. And that was our theme from the last episode. This song is the I Want song mm-hmm. of this movie, but it's inverted. Right. It's something they don't want to happen. They do not want things to change. They want yeah. to remain loving each other. And each of the four main characters has a say in this. So Kristoff wants things, he wants to be in love with Anna still, and he still is, but he wants things to change. He wants to take things to the next level, but that's not changing necessarily. That's just pushing the relationship and making it um, stronger and more secure. He's also terrified of doing it. Yeah. Oh, and then Sven tries to help him. They're they're cute together. Um, Elsa realizes she can't, she says, I can't freeze this moment. Um, Things are, are perfect the way they are now, it seems but I can still go out and seize this day. She feels the restless winds and she, she knows that things might be coming and she doesn't want them to change. So she's going to kind of do a carpe diem. Right. And she sings, is something coming? I'm not sure I want things to change at all. These days are precious. And that's why she goes out to seize the day. And then yeah. the last part of the song, when they're all, they're all singing in unison, um, they say, may our good luck last, may our past be past, time's moving fast, it's true. So they want the past to be, for, you know, not to be forgotten, but to be moved forward from. They've built, they've worked so hard together to build this family, to keep this kingdom together, despite the tragedies that it's faced. Um, their family is fragile in a lot of ways because they've, they've lost their parents. They've built it out of kind of almost from nothing again, and they want to hold on to it. Mm-hmm. And they say, as you said, that they sing, may our past be past. Let's let the past stay in the past. We're looking at the future. Even though it remains unknown, they sing, some things stay the same. Some things stay the same. And then we have to figure out throughout the movie, what is the thing that stays the same? What is, even as everything else is changing, transforming, growing into something new, what is it that does stay the same? And part of it's realizing that, that some of the past can't stay in the past. And that will certainly come up in our later episode on what this movie has to say about reparations. But basically the past, the things that have happened in the past still have an effect on the future. And we see later, you know, Grand Poppy says, I don't see a future for Arendelle unless things change. So they want to move forward, but they also will inevitably have to face what's happened in the past. And the question of the film is, can they do all that and remain together in relationships that's that strengthen them. And it's a combination of Elsa's self-discovery of who she is and the discovery of what happened in the past between the North Uldra and, and the Arendellians that allow her to grow into that new person that she's going to be and be that bridge that they mention at the end of the film. Seeing the characters having grown a little bit and moving on, I loved I loved the Some Things Never Change montage when they're setting up this communal meal in the town square, kind of like, you know, Britain at the end of World War II with the the long table in the middle of the the, the alleyways. And um, the sisters are so 
close and exuberant. They're always like hugging and grabbing each other. It's, it's, their closeness is more heartwarming because you know that they, it's different than how they grew up, but it also starts to get a little cloying. Um, you see that, especially in the forest when, when Anna is gripping onto Elsa and, and running up to her, um, at this point in the film, Elsa says, you know, what would I do without you? And Anna says, you'll always have me. But the question is, so Elsa might always have her sister, Anna, but what about the other way around? Because Elsa hears this call that she she's trying to block out, but she's hearing it insistently and she might end up leaving Anna. So that's where we get to the song Into the Unknown, which is touted as like the powerhouse, Adina Menzel ballad. Um, I prefer Show Yourself, but this is one of the most most popular songs from the soundtrack. Yeah, I think Show Yourself is the heart of the film, mm-hmm. but Into the Unknown is where Adina Menzel gets to belt. Right. Well, because she does that incredible. (laughs) So I was listening to the songwriters immediately after this this came out and watching videos of Kristen Anderson Lopez speaking about how she wrote these songs, um, you know, with her husband, the the musical strategy they employed for the song was to actually have the musicals, the music mirror what's happening in the song itself. And this is I know there's a term for it. My husband, who's a music guy, has reminded me of it. I don't remember what it's called. In my composition classes in college, we called it text painting when the music reflects the words as they're being sung. And that's exactly what happens here. We've got these three jumps. The first one is this octave, which is big but fairly safe. Then you have a ninth, one more than an octave, but it goes back to the octave, which is like her stepping her toe out the door but not really going. And then that last one is a really big one, which is an eleventh, which is a really scary interval to sing. And it really does show her finally stepping out into the unknown. She's going outside the bond beyond, wait, Outside, outside the, the bounds of what is kind of acceptable and normal. It's really a weird thing to do musically to jump past an octave in one in one big leap. Uh, so it, it's neat that that's the way that they chose to write this song. And as Elsa is moving through the castle, you know, she was about to confide in Anna mm-hmm. that she Very, heard the, the voice. At the end of the right. But then she changes her mind. Um, and she sings, I've had my adventure. I don't need something new. And here we get the fear. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid of what I'm risking if I follow you into the unknown. What is she risking? She's risking her family, her position as queen, basically everything she has after their lives were kind of systematically destroyed by fear, by their parents' death. By the isolation that that caused. Yeah. One thing that you noticed, um, in the fir- when we were watching the first one and reminded me of is that the when she she starts to hear the call she gets kind of cajoled by it and moves through the castle down to that secret door that she leaves the castle the first movie after the coronation when she's escaping she uses this like secret door by the, the shoreline and that's the same one that she escapes out this way and looks towards the north which is the north mountain where she built her ice palace but also beyond that Northern North Ultra people are where the enchanted forest is, where Atahalan is, and where the fifth spirit is calling her. And as she's talking in this, as she's singing the song, she starts to see this point um, of connection and kindred spiritness with the voice, which makes sense given that spoilers, it's her in a way. 
Um, she says, who know, you know, are you a voice, is this voice trying to distract me or are you someone out there who's a little bit like me, who knows deep down that I'm not where I'm meant to be. So she admits that she actually has a longing that this voice is matching and pulling her onwards. And that's the point where the animation just goes wild. The forest like bursts about around her in a vision, showing memories of her past. The elements are dancing around her um, and her power bursts forth from her matching it, making those diamond shapes. Um, and that's, that's what kind of ends the song. Um, and so it's, it's very much like mirroring, that the power is mirroring um, what she feels inside. And so as she's singing, as she's moving towards that part during in that section of the song, she's singing, are you out there? Do you know me? Can you feel me? Can you show me? And then where are you going? Don't leave me alone. How do I follow you into the unknown? And I, and I noticed that in the lyrics of this song, we actually see the themes from the first movie for Elsa are back, but they're reinterpreted and they have to do with fear, feeling, and aloneness. So again, she sings, I'm afraid of what I'm risking, but it's a different fear Mm -hmm. because in the first movie, again, her fear is about hurting her family. And now it's about abandoning or leaving or changing what that looks like. Then she sings, can you feel me? You know, Mm. and, and in the first movie, she was taught not to feel. And then don't leave me alone. She was the one that was always isolating Right. So we have Elsa's fears, losing her relationships that she's made since the first movie. She's relying on her feelings, her openness to the voice to guide her. And she doesn't want to be alone, but she is torn between following the voice and staying put. So these all of the things that she kind of reconciled in the first movie come back and and hit her again in into the unknown. And then she has to decide, okay, what am I going to do about it? And I wonder, would she have followed the voice if uh, Arendelle hadn't been at risk. Hmm. You mean like in terms of the flooding or the, um, the earthquakes, the elements kind of bursting The elements out? coming in and it, yeah. it, there's so much for, remember the, and some things never change. She mm-hmm. sings, um, I promise you the flag of Arendelle <laughs> will always fly. Well, not for long Elsa. And, and then immediately like five minutes later in the movie, the flag Ripped of Arendelle off. rips off and flies away. So I don't, I don't think she would have, mm maybe had the courage to go after the voice if she hadn't, you know, started the chain reaction that leads her, her on. I wonder about that. Cause there is that line that's, you know, every day is a little harder as I feel my power grow. Don't you know, there's part of me that wants to go into the unknown. We keep building until the pressure becomes unendurable. And then maybe, maybe the, the Arendelle would not be in danger, but she would, I think she'd eventually have, have to go. Although, if you think about this as her kind of coming out as herself, as her growing into something new, we can easily repress the calls that we're feeling. I mean, I, so I preached a sermon about this, co- comparing the voice to John the Baptist calling us into a uh, relationship with Christ. And I think it's, so seeing this as, you know, a, a voice calling you to endeavor, to, to take on a new endeavor, to grow into yourself as our show title shows, we don't have to do that. You can deny that voice. You can step away from it. You can repress it. And Elsa's great at repressing. So actually, I come around to your side. I think if Arendelle had not been in danger, there's a great chance that she would have continued as before and always felt this dissonance and this discomfort, but not been able to do anything about it. And then they, they so they set out on their trek. 
On the road they, trip. Oh, yeah. They get to the forest. We'll skip the road trip. Okay. They get to the forest, uh, and then we get when I'm older with Olaf. And I only I only wrote down one line from from when I'm older, which is growing up means adapting, puzzling out your world and your place, which seems to be another theme of this movie of of trying to figure out how do we fit in the adult world, which is strange for a children's movie. I mean, again, as you said, Frozen Two. For, for little kids seeing Frozen 2, they're still kids, but what about the 10, 11, 12, 13-year-olds who saw Frozen 1 who are now in college seeing Frozen 2 and gr- starting to grow up and trying to ask these questions? And Olaf, Olaf's song is wonderful because it's for both the children but also for the grown-ups in the audience who are chuckling along because Olaf is singing that when you're older, everything makes sense. <laughs> absolutely everything. <laughs> everything, absolutely, which is obviously poppycock, but it's hilarious. And so we get this meeting of, great meeting again, reunion of uh, General Matthias and the villagers and um, in this kind of tense moment, Elsa's the bridge during these tensions. She steps forward towards um, Yelena and Matthias and kind of brings them together. And they're able to settle down a little bit enough to watch Olaf's ridiculous summary of Frozen 1. Uh, this is during the section of the movie where Elsa is calming the spirits. She thinks she might also calm the giants. Everybody says, eh, maybe not. Maybe just sort of hang, hang back on that. But Elsa does say, the giant sensed me. I don't want to put anyone else at risk again. And at that point in the movie, we're, ha- we're halfway done, maybe even a little over halfway into the movie. And I'm actually starting to see a little bit of the old Elsa start to creep in. Absolutely. As she's moving north, as she's continuing towards Ottahall, and we've passed the North Mountain, we're, we're, again, into that unknown. And some of those old fears are starting to creep back. We get to the point where they find the ship. Mm. And Anna says, you are a gift. If anyone can resolve the past, if anyone can save Arendelle and save this forest, it's you. I believe in you, Elsa, more than anyone or anything uh, and but this is also again where Anna is starting to is still really clinging. She's very much yeah. She's attached to her sister. They before they go into the woods, they say, "Promise me you won't do this alone." When Elsa's quelling and taming the fire spirit, um, she says, "You know, to Anna, don't you don't like you ran into fire. Don't do that." And Anna's like, "Well, if you don't want me to follow you into fire, then don't run into fire." Yeah, and she really yells it too. That's like a that's a very there's a, a ton of emotion in that line. There's a lot and and. It end, this these scenes in the ship ends with Elsa pushing her away to keep her safe. She's afraid that her power can hurt Anna, but that the, this quest of hers will will harm Anna because she's not magical. One sister, ma- one born with magic, one normal. Uh, normal. One, is that what they said, normal or not? Anyway, but she's the non-magic sister. She's the one who can get harmed in these situations. And Elsa doesn't want her to be hurt. It's more important for her, for Anna to live. So she pushes her away. Which is where we get that pre pre frozen end of frozen one relationship. That is that is we have reverted to it at least for these couple of minutes in the movie, uh, and it's interesting how it happens about two thirds of the way in, which is at that point as you're moving from act two to act three of a movie where you actually have that low point, mm-hmm. where we we might think that low point is actually during do the next right thing. That's actually too far into the movie. Yeah, it's very close Um, to the end. It's actually right. I think it's right here where we move from act two to act three, which is when Elsa pushes Anna away. The low point of the film is her reverting back to her old 
her old way of being as she's trying to figure out how she's going to grow into that new thing. And unlike before, Anna, I mean, Anna's got Olaf in this scene as they're, they're navigating this little ice kayak through the, the earth giants. And Olaf's like, I sense some rising anger. No, rising anger in me, which is a new emotion for him as he's just been in this kind of childlike state of just joy and silliness. And Anna's like, and you have every right to be very, very mad at her. Um, and that's, an, that's a change in Anna too. She was never overtly angry at Elsa when they were growing up, when she was being shut out. She just kind of was awkward and, and joked and sad about it. But now she's saying, I'm angry about this too. And you have every right to be angry. So I'm picturing their little brick emotions uh, driving the console. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if we went back to, um, to inside out, back to inside out, right. Sadness had maybe been at the console before when she's feeling these emotions, but now it's anger. She's angry. A boundary has been violated as our feelings as messengers tell us um, a boundary has been violated and they're both mad about it. Congratulations, Aaron Dell. You ruined pizza. <laughs> <laughs> We also skipped Lost in the Woods. Aside from the beautiful, cheesy 80s ballad music video quality of this. Oh, yes. And the fact that they didn't have Jonathan Groff sing in the first film, except for that little joking Reindeer are Better Than People song. Now they've given us him in full Reindeer Chorus glory, layers upon layers of just his voice. (laughs) Yes, yes. King George. King George is singing. King George III from Hamilton. Jonathan Groff, well-known vocalist, not really being used to his full potential in this in this Lost in the Woods song. This is his, like, let it all out. A man who doesn't normally show his emotions is really, truly belting it out. Um, and there's something wonderful about that. It's a great song to jam on in your car, like karaoke style. But it also shows a lot of the codependency that he and Anna have, or more that he has for Anna. The whole theme is, I'm lost in the woods. Anna has gone off north with her sister and left him behind. She thought that he left, so it's kind of a mutual misunderstanding. And he says, north is south, right is left when you're gone. You're my only landmark, so I'm lost in the woods, wondering if you care. So their relationship is very much... um, at odds in this moment, they keep miscommunicating. They keep having all these embarrassing gaffes and two-way conversations. Um, And this will definitely change. We're not really sure what changes um, between this and the end of the movie where he says, my love is not fragile. Something I think Adam and I were talking before the podcast about maybe they cut something. There's another song between Anna and um, Kristoff that they, they did cut. So maybe there's a little bit of relationship development, but at least this again shows that you can fall in love, you can be together, and you still have to keep going from there. You still have to open up pathways of communication. You still have to talk about your relationship with each other and where you want it to go. Um, And so I think Anna and Kristoff show that, at least on his part, he's lost right now. And they will get to a point where they feel confident. And then you anticipate they have to keep growing. This movie breaks the Disney mold in a multiplicity of ways. First, that I want song is really an inversion. It's an I don't want song and something's never changed. There's not really a love interest in this film like there is in most Disney movies. Uh, Anna and Kristoff are already together. And then most of the movie, they're not in the same shot (laughs) at all. Um, And then, but the biggest one is actually there are songs near the end. In most Disney movies, mm-hmm. the last song is like two thirds of the way through the movie, maybe even halfway through the movie. And then the rest of the movie is just, there might be a reprise, 
but the rest of the movie tends to be action and resolving of the plot. You know, you think about um, Aladdin, the last song in Aladdin is, is Prince Ali. And then there's a really? reprise, there's a reprise of Prince Ali later, oh but it's gosh. not in its own song. In Frozen 1, of course, you know, Fixer Upper is two thirds of the way through the film. And then we have a ton of stuff before, before the end of the movie and there's no music, there's no singing. But in this movie, two incredibly important songs happen within 20 minutes of the end of the film. Frozen 2 is a little bit more introspective, a little bit more about internal growth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have, we get to show yourself where she's, uh, Elsa has tamed the water knock and ridden across to Atahalan. And then she starts singing as she, as she's riding across the water. And it is so beautiful. And Carrie and I both cry every time we watch this part of the movie. Yeah. Um, and so this, this really is the center of the film. Well, and you're right. Both of these songs at the end are so important. Show Yourself and The Next Right Thing are each of the sisters growing into their new identities. Elsa as the fifth spirit, as finding her true vocation. And in The Next Right Thing, it's Anna realizing she has to move forward despite her grief. She has lost everything. She's lost, except for Kristoff. She's lost Olaf and Elsa, and she still has to do the right thing. But um, Show Yourself is a lot more full. It's very it's animated in such a beautiful and evocative and symbolic way that we can talk about as we go through it. Um, but her journey deep into Atahalan shows both Elsa's growing awareness of who she is, what she's meant to do, and ultimately what that will require of her, which is her life. Uh, and she she starts with, with her, again, um, the repression from her childhood. I have always been a fortress cold secrets deep inside you have secrets too but you don't have to hide she's learned that she doesn't have to hide herself that she can be herself out in the world and it's okay so you know i like to track movies through hairstyle one of the things she does as she approaches the fort as she sings about that fortress she takes her hair down from that big thick braid that she had kind of made herself into in the first transformation in um, Let It Go. She takes that queenly twisty updo and then makes it into that like fun, spiky anime braid. She she has that hairstyle throughout this film and then she lets it down and it looks so much more open and vulnerable um, than she has ever looked in these films as she approaches this glacial opening, which is the same triangle shape as the mist had opened up into this kind of like I'm using my hands a lot, but triangular shape. It almost like reminds me like of a, like a birth canal. Like she's moving like a, this triangle shape. It's it's there, um, almost like entering into the womb where she will be born again, um, into who she's meant to be. And as she's traveling down into Atahalan, she shows a lot more. She's not doesn't only look more vulnerable and open, but she shows more grace and freedom. She's leaping, almost surfing down the way. She's showing so much more physical exuberance than she ever has in the films where first movie, she's always like her hands are together, they're gloved, she's holding back, she's very prim and proper. Here, she's just really exulting in her magic. Mm, yeah, and she sings, come to me now, open your door. We get that, again, a reprise of the first movie's theme about those gates being open up. Uh, Don't make me wait one moment more. And she sings that twice as she knows she's on the cusp of some self-realization. And she gets it in the image of her mother singing all is found to her again. And there's that, that line from that film, you know, where the North wind meets the sea, there's a mother full of memory and it's, she will find her mother and the memories that she needs to pull, put the dots together 
and to find who she is, why she was gifted with this power in the first place. Elsa engages in this transformation when her mom sings, come my darling homeward bound and Elsa responds and finishes the rhyming couplet with I am found. And then she transforms. And it's almost the opposite of the transformation she has in Frozen 1, which I think I alluded to, which happens from the bottom up. The kind of ice dress grows from the ice palace up under her body. In this transformation, she transforms from her heart out. The power blooms from inside of her. Yeah, someone on Twitter gift this back when I was following hashtag frozen two on Twitter obsessively. So I'm, I'm not responsible for noticing that's this. That's really cool. He, I love that. The transformation bloom from inside of herself. And that's when Iduna is singing, show yourself, step into your power, grow yourself into something new. Or I guess they're both singing at that point. And, and she's surrounded by those memories. So it's the blending of the past and the present of getting a new image that matches who she is inside and the power that she's literally wrapped in. And when Aduna sings, you are the one you've been waiting for, Elsa finishes all of my life. That's one of those wonderful things that we can say to ourselves over and over again as we grow. Mm-hmm. Grow yourself into something new. Grow yourself into something new. If we're not growing, then we're dead. We continue to learn. We continue to grow throughout our lives. And and when we grow, as the wonderful verses from 1 Corinthians 13 that we read before show show us we're growing in love love that never ends is what saint paul says and there are three things that abide faith hope and love and the greatest of these is love and we we don't know everything when we're children we don't know everything when we're adults we still see through that mirror dimly mm-hmm. and yet love continues to spur us into growth, into new experiences, into reaching out in new ways, reaching past our fears, reaching past our isolation. As we are reaching out, we can understand ourselves as we understand others better. We understand ourselves better. And I think that's what's happening with Elsa here as she's going and she's seeing all of these scenes of her life and other people's lives and what happened with the Northuldra and the Arendellians Mm -hmm. with the, with the horrible deception of her grandfather. And then she makes that decision to jump deeper as far into Adahalan as she can. And we know what that, what that's going to mean because she's going to drown, which is that the creepy part of all is found as, as they say, why do, why do, why do uh lullaby is always getting so depressing yeah um and then so and she sends that memory to to anna with her last breath and so we have this wonderful presentation of as elsa understands who she is she understands both what she needs to do and also how her two peoples are going to be able to come back together and grow forward with each other on the book club we're reading chapters 14 15 and 16 of prisoner of azkaban here's a quick recap chapter 14 snape's grudge hogwarts is on lockdown that sounds familiar as the staff increases security following the break-in by sirius black harry choosing between the safety of others and his own personal desires again that sounds familiar decides not to reveal the secret entrance to hogsmeade hermione vows to tattle if harry leaves the castle and the boys double down on their grudge against her 
In Hogsmeade, covered by the invisibility cloak, Harry pranks Malfoy and his goons, but is partially revealed, leading to a tense confrontation with Snape upon his return. He's rescued by Lupin, but instead of an easy exit, Harry is subjected to another lecture, this time with teeth. Lupin knows about the map, what it does, and is astounded Harry would so flagrantly disregard his own safety, risking the life his own parents sacrificed theirs for. Hermione confronts the boys not to tell them off, but to let them know that Buckbeak has been sentenced to death. Chapter 15, The Quidditch Final. An awkward reunion ensues with Ron forgiving Hermione mostly to get her to stop crying. Thank goodness for good friends because Hermione faces a rough day ahead. She misses charms with class by accident and finally reaches a boiling point with divination and storms out. Exams are on the horizon and everyone buckles down to study, Harry included, when he's not practicing Quidditch. In the final against Slytherin, although the boys in green play every nasty trick they have, Gryffindor triumphs and wins the cup. Chapter 16, Professor Trelawney's Prediction. Ah, another exam time at Hogwarts chapter, one of my favorite types, as it reminds me that I'm not in school anymore. Hermione is somehow double booked for all her exams, but waves it off. Buckbeak's appeal draws near, but it seems like a foregone conclusion, as the committee will be bringing an executioner with them. Harry's exams pass without much incident until divination. Gazing into the crystal ball, Harry goes with the old divination standby, which is to make it up. He says he sees Buckbeak flying away, freed, not killed. As he is about to leave, Trelawney makes a startling prediction. The Dark Lord's servant will come back to him and help him return, greater and more powerful than before. Visiting with Hagrid, the trio is shocked when Hermione finds scabbers in a milk jug, worse for wear but alive. As the execution party comes to the hut, the three escape out the back door, hearing the swish and thud of an axe. This is where I think the fact that I've seen this movie a bunch of times starts messing with me because mm-hmm. in my brain, like a stone comes through the window and breaks something. Yeah. But that doesn't happen in the book. No. Yeah. So I'm now I'm going to have to read the next couple of chapters going, okay, wait, what parts are in the movie and what parts are in the book? Because now it's all scrambled in my mind. The confrontation with Snape is awkward. I really hate chapter 14 because there's like fighting with the friends. There's being told off by Lupin. There's doing, Harry's doing things I don't agree with. Um, I drew the COVID parallels in our, in our um, recap document, because I do see it being alive and at work here. Everyone's safety is at risk and Harry is doing what he wants. He's being selfish, which is uncharacteristic for him and frustrating to read. And he also justifies using the one eyed witch's passage because nobody knows about it. So I can still use it. We would have heard if someone broke into the shop. Like, no, you wouldn't. You're 13-year-olds. Yes, it's, it's, there's a lot of flagrant, as you said, uh, selfishness here. Uh, I like in Chapter 14, Hagrid telling off Harry and Ron for not valuing Hermione more than broomsticks or rats. Hag- Hagrid's got a great moral compass here and a friendship compass uh, where he's basically saying, you two are in the wrong here because... She's just looking out for you, and she's under a heck of a lot of stress that you're not taking into credit here. And I wonder, you know, obviously Hermione's using the time turner to go to extra classes, but one assumes, and maybe they say this later, that she's also using the time turner to study more. I assume uh, so. And, you know, she maybe she could have used it to get extra sleep. Then how many, how, wouldn't she be like end up being like a year older, even older than everyone else? Yeah, right. <laughs> well, Emma Watson's a year younger than the other actors. So maybe the, she would have caught up. up. <laughs> yeah, I guess. 
but but you're right. She's under a lot of pressure. And although throughout the book, Ron is obsessed with the well, not obsessed. He meant he's the only one who really mentions the mystery of like how can Hermione be in these two classes? How can her exams be scheduled? He doesn't actually stop to wonder, even if, if she was or even if she wasn't. Either way, it's not a good situation for her. And I know Hermione waves him off, but they can see the pressure she's under, and it's disappointing to see how easily they cut her off. And not just her, not just them. It seems like none of the teachers are looking out for Hermione either. She's obviously on the verge of a nervous breakdown. And we don't, maybe because we're focused on Harry in the book, we don't see her tearful conversations with McGonagall mm. if they exist. Mm-hmm. But she should have dropped divination, you know, in October. Yeah. Not after really, Easter. I relate to Hermione a lot in that because I'm very much a, I've committed to this, so I'm going to see it out till the end. I really, I definitely relate to this desire to, even if divination's a total waste of time, she wants to stick with it. And she, only when she gets to that boiling point where it's just absolutely absurd, she's tired, she's frustrated, she's already missed one important class there where she just, she bounces, as they say. (laughs) Yeah, I like that part. Um, Harry has a, you might call it saintly vision of his father. Mm-hmm. And the conversation with Snape. With Snape, yeah. My dad didn't strut. You have no idea what your dad did or didn't do. Harry has only his own vision of his father, his own construction of what his father must have been like. And we actually see over the course of the books that construction of James Potter broken down again and again. You know, specifically in Snape's memories, is that in book five? When he's learning, when he's learning occlumency, to the point where like Harry wonders, like, did he force my mom into marriage? Like he was a, he was a crummy teenager, so therefore he. I mean, I guess they only got married when they were like nineteen, so he changed pretty fast. And I think Sirius mentions that, like, once he started dating Lily, he stopped hexing Snape in front of her. Um, but you feel like he he is a bully, and Harry idolizes him. Obviously, James gave his life for him, so it shows the complexity of people that you can be a bully, and that's deplorable and you can still be a good parent in a lot of ways although we wonder would his bullying tendencies if he had lived what would that look like um would they have had to come to a reckoning harry have to come to a reckoning about his father earlier of knowing that one of his teachers really has a contentious relationship with him i don't know yeah and and snape you know brings him back to earth when he talks about um the only reason that that james saved my life, quote unquote, saved my life was because he got cold feet. He didn't want to get in trouble because it's coming from Snape as a, as a reader, we want to trust Harry, not Snape because Snape is set up as this, you know, this foil. Uh, And so we're able to sort of poo poo what Snape is saying um, and sort of trust that maybe Harry's intuition about his dad is right. But that just keeps getting knocked down you know, over and over again. Uh, but I, I think it's an accurate thing for a, a kid who's lost a parent to create the perfect version of that person in their head, even mm-hmm. though it's not going to be who they really were. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and maybe to an extent, people whose parents are alive need to do that. Part of growing up is seeing your parents as people who make mistakes, who have faults. And sometimes, you know, in, in a young person's life, you go to the point where you're like, well, I just want to totally push him away. And if there's truly a lot of dysfunction, one might need to do that. But kind of you have to reconstruct your parents as individuals who are flawed, not these perfect, strong pillars of your life. And I'm saying this from a, a, a pretty 
non-dysfunctional family. Um, so I, obviously that, that gets challenged at a much younger age for a lot of people in, in different circumstances, but you have to eventually come to the point where you realize your parents are people and they have their ups and downs. Yeah. I think that with somebody whose parents are dead, like Harry's, it's way harder to do that. The complexities of relationships that we have and coming to terms with that, that sometimes things don't get don't grow because they get caught off too soon. And um, we, I mean, we hear that later from Dumbledore after Sirius has died, like he says, it's a shame that what could have been like such a a long lasting and strong relationship had to be cut off after Mm -hmm. only knowing each other for two years. With Harry, it shows why he is conflicted around the Dementors. He really wants to hear his parents' voices. And, um, and that's, what's preventing him from, creating the the Patronus or one of the things preventing him from creating the Patronus. Um, when Lupin saves him from Snape, I hear so much disappointment in Lupin's voice. You know, it's, it's one of those situations where like when a parent says, I'm disappointed to you, it's worse than whatever the punishment <laughs> I'm is. not mad. I'm just disappointed. I'm just disappointed right. <laughs> That's how Lupin is, is acting here. Mm-hmm. And he calls out Harry on what you just said earlier about, about COVID, right. You know, putting the needs of yourself in front of the needs of the many here. And of, of and of himself. I mean, he's putting himself at risk. Let's see. So it's the shared shock around Buckbeak's sentence that brings Ron and Hermione back together. Mm-hmm. And then Ron offers to take up the work for the appeal, which is kind of kind of nice that it is he's, nice. Real, he's realized that he's fallen down on that. Um, and he actually does the work too. Yeah, we find yeah. out later he actually does the work, which is, which is pretty good. He's disappointed that they're not even going to like listen to his arguments, that Hagrid doesn't have a chance to share them because the appeal is basically already decided. Yeah, it's a farce. And they bring the executioner, McNair, who doesn't he end up being a Death Eater? Oh, yeah, he's totally yeah, a Death yeah, Eater. Yeah, he's a Death Eater, yeah. So <laughs> I, I like that in at the beginning of, or somewhere in Chapter 16, Professor Trelawney would never make a prediction as far-fetched as Voldemort returning. <laughs> it shows It shows that she has this sort of um, spectrum along which she'll, 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 she'll say things within her divining. Well, it's funny because Harry's made-up vision is actually comes true. It's what he wants, but he ends up making that happen. He wants Buckbeak to be free. And Professor Trelawney's like weirdly, well, she, we know she's morbid. So she's like, are you sure you don't see like, head head on the ground or blood or haggard crying which is horrible um but then she actually makes a true prediction but part of this prophecy thing is she doesn't remember it and so that's the reason she's at hogwarts in the first place is because she made that initial prophecy about harry and the dark lord um to dumbledore so, right to dumbledore who right. then in the end which snape partially overheard and told voldemort uh, but not the most important part and that's what got lily killed and and so on and so forth um but that's what she's that's what she's doing at Hogwarts, even though she's a terrible teacher. It's the only way Dumbledore can really keep her safe. Uh, indeed, right. So you always sort of wonder why she's around because she's kind of a flim flam artist. Yeah. Well, and if Dumbledore doesn't really think there's much to be, you can't kind of you can't teach that kind of prophecy. It just happens. Um, and the yeah. centaurs have their own magic, which they're not even sure humans can learn. So, or if they could learn, it would take decades perhaps yeah, so yeah. It's when kind friends of object when, when friends comes in to teach later he's he, he he's doesn't completely really... uninterested in yeah. their progress <laughs> um let's go burn some sage on the floor of the classroom okay back to this book though <laughs> that's really all i got honestly 
this is again, one of those like deep breath before the plunge, um, the plots accelerating. There's a lot of Quidditch that I don't care about. Um, and we're, we're moving up where all the pieces are falling into place for the final chapters. The, the chapters where you read you, you, whenever you hit this part of the book, you just read to the end. I will say, I wonder why they continue to let Lee Jordan announce Quidditch because every single match McGonagall is getting <laughs> on to him about being biased towards Gryffindor. I wonder what Lee Jordan goes up, go, ends up doing with his life. Maybe he becomes a play-by-play announcer for Quidditch. That'd be great. That'd be or maybe, great. maybe he becomes the next director of magical games and sports. Indeed. We can only hope for our favorite uh, Weasley twin friend. Uh, turn, tune, in, only. Uh, tune in in uh, 2024 for our <laughs> Lee Jordan speculation <laughs> podcast. Next time on the book club, we'll be reading chapters 17, 18, 19, and 20. So a four part, cha- a four chapter one. That's Cat, Rat, and Dog, Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs, The Servant of Lord Voldemort, and The Dementor's Kiss. Happy reading. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. You can find us at nerdychristians.com or on social media, facebook.com slash nerdychristians, and on Twitter at nerdychristians. You can find me on Twitter at RevAdamThomas or on my brand new website, adamthomas.net. Check out Seven of Shadow, the final volume of my fantasy series, The Shields of Suleru on Amazon. And you can always find both Carrie and me right here on the next episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. As the great prophet Olaf once said, when you're older, absolutely everything makes sense. But this is not always true. As you grow and change, may God, whose love is not fragile, bless you and gift you with strong, life-giving relationships. People who support you, who help you to show yourself, step into your power, grow yourself into something new, and be the person you are called to be. Amen. Amen.